from Advisory Board. We're bringing you a radio advisory. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Today, I am thrilled to bring you a conversation with Dr. Aaron Carroll. If you don't know who Aaron is, be prepared to be blown away. He is a pediatric physician. He's the chief health officer for Indiana University. He's a popular New York Times contributor. He's the editor-in-chief of the health policy blog, The Incidental Economist. And he makes videos for his YouTube channel, Healthcare Triage. Not to mention the fact that he has authored or co-authored several books, including his latest, The Bad Food Bible. All this means that I could have talked to Aaron about a million things, but I wanted to bring him to Radio Advisory to speak directly to you about how you can combat all of the myths and misinformation that exists today. Make sure you stick around for the very end of the episode for a breakdown of my conversation with Aaron. I bring on two colleagues, Solomon Banjo and Pam Divac, because I wanted to get their take on the delicate role that clinicians play when it comes to sharing information online and with each other. But for now, let's go to the conversation with Aaron Carroll. Okay, I have to admit that I'm trying really hard not to fangirl too much here. (laughs) Truly, I have been following you for for years. In fact, I have a healthcare triage mug. Oh, good for you. That's very nice. This was actually a gift from my brother for like Christmas or, or my birthday. So he he is just as excited that I'm speaking to you as, as I am. Oh, so a little shout out day. to my this brother. Very nice. Thank you. Thank him for me as well. I will definitely do that. Now, Aaron, one of the big focus areas for your career, and there are there are a lot is teaching real people about medical myths. This was obviously a problem long before COVID-19. But I'm curious, what kind of feels different for you right now? What feels different about this moment? I think the stakes, to be very honest with you, is the biggest difference. People who are buying into misinformation or myths at the moment are not just putting others at risk, they're putting their own lives at risk. And Mm -hmm. most of the time when I'm talking about medical myths – it's small ball. It's it's things which might make a slight difference at the edge or might make a tiny quality of life difference. Or even if we're talking nutrition, it might make a broad like years or decades long difference. But mm-hmm. right now, buying into the wrong stuff could be, you know, impact your mortality. And like in the very short term, it's it's a it's a whole different game. Absolutely. Is there a moment where you started noticing more of this misinformation creeping in, either in your own practice, right, as a, as a physician, or as your broader in your broader career? Is there a moment where you went, hmm, I'm getting a lot more questions from people that just don't make sense or are completely rooted in misinformation or maybe even disinformation? I think things felt like they got tense when the country started the lockdown last year. Hmm. You know, up until that point, you know, in January and February – the pandemic was something over there. Yeah. It wasn't even affecting us. And in March, it was still hard to raise alarm bells. It, was, it wasn't it was a big deal. But, you know, by the time we got to April, when it felt like a lot of the country was locking down and people were taking it seriously, that's when I think you just started to see pushback because people's lives and livelihood were being really affected. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you don't see it every day and if you weren't in the healthcare system, you did not see it every day back then. 
it was hard to understand why we were doing that. And I think that it, I feel like that's when things started to pick up. It's when you just started seeing protests around lockdowns or mm-hmm. you know, protests around masking that that was when it felt like things were getting worse. I also feel like in the world of myths and misinformation, there's just some particular vulnerability in the medical and healthcare space because it is so complex and misunderstood, even by the folks within it, that it just becomes really hard to battle. People in general have no appreciation of how much uncertainty there is in medicine. You know, that yeah. I joke all the time, like one of the dirty secrets that we don't tell anyone is how much we're just making it up. <laughs> You know, the number of things for which there's like rock solid randomized controlled trial evidence is really small. Yeah. A lot of the times we're going with best guess, best practice, and we sometimes get it wrong, but we speak with the same level of authority, no matter what that sort of level of evidence is. And so this felt like a a time when a lot of people were all of a sudden exposed to how much uncertainty we often have to deal with in medicine, but it was playing out right before their eyes and people freaked out. Yeah, they didn't know how to deal with it. In their in their mind, right, it's you're changing the goalposts on me. See, you don't know what you're talking about, so why should I trust you this time? But not realizing this is inherent to the way that we, that we study and ultimately practice right. medicine. I, I remember being on a podcast in, I want to say April or May, I can't remember exactly, but it was about masks. And hmm. And like the, the, the host was like, how, how, how can you live with this level of uncertainty? And I'm like, this is every day. Like, this I, is my I, job. I don't know. Like, I'm totally comfortable with this. I'm always playing small odds in one way or the other and understanding that, you know, the best treatments we have still have what number needed the treat of like one in a hundred, one in a thousand. Like it's, everything is incremental and it's just, there's often a fair amount of uncertainty. And so at the beginning, when we were talking about masks, it was focused on masks that protect you meaning mm-hmm. M95s that there were in short supply and we needed to hoard them for the healthcare system who were at highest risk. And so I remember even saying or tweeting at one point, like if you're, if you're wearing a mask thinking M95 at this point, you're wasting yeah. a mask. Right. And then months later it was like, okay, no, no, no. Now we, we know it's, it's airborne. Everyone should wear it. Not even months later, maybe a month later, everyone should wear cloth masks. And people are like, well, you said that. And I'm like, well, yeah, different masks in a different circumstance. And yeah, we're learning as we go. Yeah. And this is why I think it is so unbelievably difficult to nudge or ultimately change behavior. And and you've pointed out before that one of the biggest reasons why this is a problem is because the very people with the least understanding of science tend to be the ones that oppose it the most, right? That's why large-scale efforts to educate the public tend to, tend to fail. Yeah. I think we know what really doesn't work. We know that bombarding people with facts, figures, data is not going to be that effective. Do we have any understanding of what does work to nudge behavior? So, I mean, there is some. Unfortunately, it's hard. Obviously, if if messages come from trusted voices in the community, Mm -hmm. they work better. But that's often hard to do because the same people want to be the answer for everything. And that doesn't work. I also think, and this is more personal, it requires time and effort to to truly get to understand you know, sort of where the lesion is, what, where, where's the misinformation or misunderstanding come from? What's the concern? How do I address it? But my biggest gripe is that the answers are often complicated. Yeah. So when someone wants to say like, do masks work? I'm like, that's going to take 10 minutes for me to answer. Like I cannot yeah. put it in a soundbite. And most people, unfortunately, consume their news from cable news where it's, if you're lucky, you get to say three sentences and then someone else is going to say three contradictory sentences and then they'll go P 
people disagree when, yeah. when really it's a nuanced, long answer required. And there just isn't a lot of space for that in today's media, with the exception being podcasts, which is why <laughs> it's one of the few things I'll say yes to, because there's an actual chance to have the long form discussion where you might actually get into some of the nuances of the answer as opposed to, you know, a quick hit on a panel where nothing gets learned. Right, exactly. And that's one of the reasons why I think the physician to patient or clinician to patient relationship is so important because we see that generally speaking, generally speaking, people still trust their mm-hmm. doctor. And in ideal circumstances, of course, which which aren't always there, there is a moment for trust building in the physician office or through telehealth or in a portal message where you can at least spend a little bit more time unpacking where that person came from or the quote unquote evidence that yep. they are trying to pit against yours. What is your advice for how clinicians can in the moment kind of try to get these messages to stick? Well, again, I think it's important to try to figure out where the where the problem is. Some of it is just misinformation and there's no sort of negative intent. Like some people think it costs a lot of money still to get vaccinated. Uh, mm. you know, I mean, it's free, but they just think it. And so just making sure they understand that. For some people, it's literally a logistical barrier. It's just it, it takes activation energy and time that they don't feel they have. If we could just figure yeah. a way to get the vaccine to them, they might get it. Some of it is mistrust in the healthcare system, which has to be combated with long-term building of trust. Mm-hmm. Um, and some of it is they've just literally heard lies and yeah. they have to be carefully and thoughtfully countered in a respectful and compassionate manner. You know, that you're right though. That is something that physicians should be able to do because yeah. they should have that kind of relationship where they can probe and get the answers they want. Of course, you know, office visits get shrunk and shrunk in terms of- That's exactly right. Yeah. That's a problem that I'm hearing. It's not that clinicians don't think that that's their role or that they don't want to do it. It's that they're saying, hold on, I'm this overworked. I'm this understaffed. You've pushed me to be transactional in all of these different ways through telehealth. How the heck am I going to take – I don't have time to build a trusted relationship, let alone spend time unpacking this information in the moment. What advice do you have for that pushback? Like make the time. I mean, it's just, I, know, I know that it's. I know that that's a flip answer, but you know we're the last line of of defense here. I mean, I, I look. I'm a pediatrician, so for a long time, you know, it's been difficult convincing some parents to vaccinate their children. Yeah. This is not new, certainly for pediatricians who have dealt with uh, myths and misinformation about fix vaccines for decades. Uh, so. This is this is part of what we're going to need to do for for COVID as well. It's it's I don't think we've relied as much on the healthcare system to be very yeah. honest, and that's something that that we might need to reconsider moving forward. In that we've relied on broad public health messaging and the general public to try to get vaccines across. They're not often delivered in the doctor's office the way most vaccines are, and so that's right. It's very different, and we've perhaps miss that opportunity where, you know, if we were making this part of the regular doctor visit, maybe we could get a few more people or at least a decent number of people vaccinated. And maybe don't assume that you're going to change somebody's mind one time, right? Especially if you're thinking about a longitudinal patient relationship, if you're going to be seeing someone over and over again, if you're taking a couple minutes at the end of each visit 
talking about the vaccine. I read this wonderful piece that was talking about a, a patient with with HIV who related very strongly to his physician, who was a fellow black homosexual male. And he spent the better part of a year at the end of each visit when they were doing regular checkups to say, what about vaccination? What about COVID-19? And it took time, but the moment that the patient said, Doc, I did it, was kind of made it all worth it for this physician. I would agree. And I think that physicians should be used. I mean, if you've ever tried to counsel someone on diet and exercise, like- Oh, yeah. It doesn't happen in the one visit. I mean, the way I've been talking, I've been assuming an established relationship that now if you already have the level of trust, you can- But if you're seeing a new patient for the first time, of course- very little is going to be successful in that first contact. It's it's just the beginning, and we we just have to take the long road on this. It's a marathon, not a sprint. You brought up diet and exercise. I wonder if that means there's actually something that we can learn from old-school patient activation here, right? In pop health, we assess patient activation because we want to know, should we intervene? And if so, when? Which, of course, means sometimes we don't. Right. Do you think that there's some some application here of choosing when, how, when to ignore medical misinformation, even when it shows up at our practice? Well, I mean, I will gauge sometimes, and granted, not as much in clinical practice, but more when I'm doing more public health. I will gauge sometimes how, you know, what, where the, how entrenched someone is. You know, there are some people I'm like, they're so angry or antagonistic about it. Then, you know, if I truly try to go deep and argue with them, I'm just going to entrench them further. Mm-hmm. Um, and so sometimes it's worth just backing off. Yeah. Uh, because you're you're not, because if I'm not the right person and I'm not the trusted individual, then if I argue, I'm just convincing them they're right and I'm wrong. What's the red flag for you when you go, oh, I, I'm actually might be doing more harm than good. I might be entrenching them. When people leap from argument to argument to argument to argument, and then they start mm. circling around again, where it's, if I have an answer to everything they say, and they just keep leaping into arguments, I'm like, okay, this is, this is not going to work. But if people have a concern or a, you know, block, and, and I can address that, and we can go in depth into that, then I feel like there's more progress that's likely going to be made. Yeah. And especially if I feel like I can answer this in a way that maybe will stick and convince. I mean, you can sometimes tell when people are being thoughtful about it or whether they're just, you know, using an excuse. Yeah. You know, I, I know plenty of people who are like, well, I won't get it because it's not FDA authorized. And the day Pfizer got authorized, then it was, well, now they authorized it too fast. They didn't. I know. Okay. <laughs> like that was an excuse. That was not a reason. Yeah. Um, and that's fine. Like just if you'd said that, we could have saved both of us some time. Yeah. Um, but if people have, you know, if people have genuine concerns and I can explain why it feels fast for the vaccines have been developed, but that doesn't mean that safety got skipped, then, you know, many people can be convinced. And so sometimes it's also opening it up, asking if, if they have questions, seeing what kind of questions or concerns they have, answering the first few of them and then getting a feel for is this someone that we're going to be able to make progress with today? Or is this a, let's just establish some relationship and trust and move along the next time. Part of that is being, you know, a clinician and establishing relationships with patients. Yeah, absolutely. I think if we're going to address misinformation, myths, disinformation, we have to understand how it spreads. And you mentioned one way that it spreads, which is through kind of the cable news networks. But a lot of this comes from online information and online discourse. But what strikes me 
is that I'm also seeing more clinicians, more researchers, more scientists online. You've obviously been doing this for a very long time. My, my question, though, to you is, do you believe that everyday clinicians should be moving their guidance online and maybe even into social media platforms? It depends how engaged and you know involved you're willing to be. I, hmm. I think that the problem is that with social media, especially with things like Twitter, yeah. is that people think there's a magic tweet which will convince everyone that they were right and everyone else was wrong. And that never, ever, ever happens. Um, <laughs> you know, most of the time you are preaching to the choir that, you know, the, you're, the engagement is going to be mostly followers who already agree with you. Or, In your bubble, yeah. Right, or people who just, you know, have retweeted and then you just get like a mob of people who violently disagree with you. I think very few people are ever convinced by anything on Twitter. So my, I've always said Twitter's a tool. Like I use it to drive people to content that I think might make a difference. So columns I've written, videos I've made, other things other people have written, thoughtful articles by really good journalists or, you know, data that might sway someone's opinion. But I'm, I, I always am amazed that, you know, if I have something that maybe went viral and people are like, oh, you know, I'm like, this made no difference. Like, you don't understand like this. Mm. No one was convinced by this. It made me make me feel better for five minutes that like, you know, just out of angst. Yeah. But are people convinced in the opposite way, right? I'm thinking there are a lot of videos that have been shared on new platforms like TikTok. And I see nurses, I even see physicians, right, that are using their own medical background almost as armor, to spread mis- and disinformation. So if you feel like it's not enough to make a positive impact, is it, though, making a negative impact when clinicians are doing this? I mean, granted, there's people that absolutely believe that the answer is yes. This is where, like, I'm taking the long view on this. Mm. Anti-vaccination sentiment has existed as long as there have been vaccines. I mean, we, right. we did an ep- one or two episodes on this. We did a series on vaccination and healthcare triage. You know, it is not as if we needed social media to have a massive worldwide misinformation backlash against MMR. Mm-hmm. We did not need social media for that. And it was real and impactful and we're still feeling the lingering effects. You know, there was actual, you know, crime and violence about vaccines long before we had any of this. Now, does it make it faster and easier? I imagine it does. But I don't know how much of it is is actually to blame versus it's easy to point and say, well, this must be what it is. Hmm. I don't know. Was anyone expecting vaccination in the United States to go much to more easy? Than <laughs> I mean, we, we don't ever yeah. get more than this number in flu shots. We, you know, vac- the H, what is it? I think I saw in the CDC that like right now, something like, you know, fewer than 20% of young adults are vaccinated against HPV right now. Like, oh, wow. When we don't mandate vaccines, people don't uptake, you know, take vaccines. Like, it's just, it's just, it's, that's how it goes. Now, all the vaccines with very high levels of vaccination are mandated. And organizations yeah. and schools that have mandated the COVID vaccine achieve very high levels of vaccination. When we don't mandate them, it doesn't happen. Blaming it on social media may feel convenient, but I don't know that that's really the cause. I agree. And I think there's a lot of debate, not just about mandates, but how strongly should we push? What kinds of, I'll say maybe draconian measures should we use? 
So that brings me back to misinformation. Do you believe that healthcare organizations, medical boards, professional boards, are they doing enough to enforce standards on physicians, on nurses who are spreading harmful messages? Well, they're they're just starting to threaten to do something. And so they really haven't done much. That's right. Having said that, yeesh, it is hard to police this stuff. It is very easy for physicians to couch themselves in specific patient information or uncertainty or levels of evidence to because again, we deal with uncertainty so often. I see all the time where patients are like, I know this is what we're supposed to do in this situation, but my patient is different. And hmm. there's a lot of acceptance from both patients and physicians for that kind of attitude. In um, a lot of different ways. My patient ways. is different from a safety perspective. Oh, yeah. Hate Always guidelines, hate protocols, mm-hmm. hate anything because my patient is different. And I know better. And that has also existed long before COVID. So it's just, you know, policing this is, is a, I don't want to say a slippery slope because I hate the word, but it, if you, if they're going to start with this, there's lots of other areas where we also could say, well, you know, this isn't right either. And that's not right. And that's not right. And that's not right. Yeah. We just don't do that unless things get really egregious. And maybe right now we're at really egregious, but I'm sure it's hard for the organizations and licensing boards to to want to wade into that. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break. We know that representation in healthcare is crucial to improve care outcomes, decision making, business performance, community trust, and to ensure all employees can thrive. Advisory Board, in partnership with Optum, invites you to share innovative strategies you've used to successfully increase the diversity of your workforce to better reflect your community's demographic makeup in clinical and leadership roles. This November, we're holding an innovation showcase on strategies to advance diversity. The organization with the winning idea will receive $10,000 they can use to further invest in their DEI work. Plus, all finalists will be profiled in upcoming advisory board research. To enter the showcase, go to advisory.com slash DEI showcase or visit the link in the show notes. All submissions must be in before October 1st. Once again, to enter the showcase, go to advisory.com slash DEI showcase or visit the link in the show notes. We're talking about combating misinformation between the patient and the physician, right? Whether it's an, an or the or the physician and the lay person, maybe right. is what I'll say. Whether it's in the office, whether it's online. But one interesting trend that we've been tracking is there's just a lot more online communication between clinicians, right? Clinicians are using open online platforms to actually debate with each other. Hmm. My question for you is: Does does that kind of online communication does it quicken the pace? of translating new research, new ideas into clinical practice? Or is there a downside here? I I think it's both. I think it probably does. But again, it's like, this is where 
I, I think it's 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 important to understand that still a minority of probably clinicians are engaging in this space. And so while it seems like it's huge and pervasive, it's still mostly a smallish number of sure. massively exposed people. And that that goes sort of across the board. So look, I I think in general more transparency is better. I think that yeah. you know having I think the public understanding that there is uncertainty in a lot of what we do and that you know being able to ask open and honest questions of of their clinicians and get good answers, I think that's massively important. So I think that's great. And I don't think it's bad for for you know, doctors or, or any other clinicians to be on social media or to have a presence or to answer questions. I think that's great. But I do worry that, you know, not everything that's said is true. And people yeah. often hang their hat on credentials as if that's the metric by which we should trust. And that that's a problem. Or let's be honest, people, even experts, can see different things in data, can come to slightly different conclusions. And that, again, could have a downstream impact to real people who are going, oh, they don't know what they're talking about. (laughs) The angriest audience, the the, the most angry people professionals have gotten to me was, uh, I want to say it was, oh God, I can't remember now at this point. It might have been two years ago. There was a series of randomized controlled trials in Annals of Internal Medicine that looked at what's the real danger of meat and yeah. you know, the, the evidence is not great. And so I wrote an editorial on it. And I like I would argue like this is in a prestigious peer-reviewed journal. I was taking mm-hmm. a reasonable take of like, let's assess the evidence. And and clinicians lost their minds. Because you know, yeah. whatever side you fall on the meat wars is like it's the, you know, it's gonna kill you, or people have really over over uh, overhyped this. Hand. And yeah anger and vitriol. And I would be like, this is the issue. Like we don't know, but both sides are convinced they absolutely do know. And the other side's lying. Yeah. And I could see how for the general public that could be massively, you know, confusing. Especially if it plays out online, right? Yeah. And it kind of comes back to your your comment about policing. We talked about medical boards policing in, in a very kind of specific strong way. But is there a role where you do want clinicians online to be policing each other and saying, hey, maybe we shouldn't do this publicly or you're or you are wrong or you are spreading misinformation? Well, it was less that it was public than how angry it got. Like, I, I uh, think it was good to have, I think, honestly, a discussion that actually, right in my camp, a discussion actually like of how questionable the evidence is in some of these cases is a good thing. And Lord knows I've written enough column, hmm, you know, saying mm-hmm. like the evidence here is weak. People should know that. But I don't do it attacking like in, like I don't make it about you're trying to kill people, you're evil. And when it gets to that level, then there's, I think, a, a level of trust. Like I think people understanding that there is some gray in healthcare yeah. and that we're all doing our best to understand it better if people understood that and saw that play out, that might increase trust. I think people yeah. viewing us screaming and yelling at each other like children will only decrease trust. And so it's the way we do it sometimes, not just that we do. I think you are spot on. If the thing that we know that works is the trusted relationships that patients have with their clinical team, we need to figure out how do we use the media? How do we use the internet? How do we use the existing relationships we have to keep building that trust, which might mean 
being transparent about what we don't know, saying that this is a gray area, explaining the process behind why we don't have black and white information, and that that can actually be building trust, not detracting it. Yeah, I, I say I don't know all the time. I, I don't understand why people are so afraid of that. Like I, hmm. And sometimes it's, I don't know, I got to go look that up. And sometimes it's, I don't know, because we don't know. You know, even when we talk about, you know, things like like masks, like people talk about masks with a really fairly large amount of surety. And it's like, and I'm like, okay, there are situations and we have a knowledge base about when masks might be useful. But then there's times where it's like, yeah, the, the absolute value or the benefit is probably getting small. I mean, if you're talking about, should I wear a mask if I'm, ta- you know, sitting outside with someone 20 feet away, it's like, yeah, but there are other people like no masks are always, and it's like okay, no, there's we got to be be able to talk about the nuance here. Yeah, the nuance, the gray area, the trade offs. Yeah, yeah. And then, absolutely, and, and and be able to do so, you know, carefully, and to be able to do so honestly and like dispassionately, and not like you know assume the worst in each other. But too too, especially on social media, too many of these discussions become just yelling at each other, and that that's a problem. And this is where good digital citizenship becomes really, really important. And right, you use all sorts of platforms to communicate with your peers, with with the public. What advice do you have, let's say, for other clinicians that might be thinking about getting a little bit deeper into their online presence? How should they be practicing good digital citizenship? I mean, I tried, I mean, for me, it always was at the beginning was I tried to ground almost everything I said with evidence that and even when we started the blog, which is the first thing I did like in 2009, 2010, it was that it was not that I wanted to come and tell you my opinion. It was that I wanted to explain, here's the reason I believe this and here's all the evidence and the rat. And if you disagree, there's a comment section and let's talk about it. But it wasn't trust me. It was let me explain. Hmm. And I, I like to think that that's what my columns are too, that they're full of links to research and I'm explaining why this study matters and why this is so and what evidence and what caveats exist and how I get to this, this opinion, how I get here, not I just believe it because then we can debate the rationale behind it as opposed to just having a yelling match as to, to what we each believe. I love that. Let me explain instead of, and that also is an element of trust. I know it's not just trust me explicitly. Everything that comes out of my mouth should be, you know, you know, chapter and verse for you. Instead, it's let me explain. I I love that. And it is building trust. I agree with you. It's like, I don't expect if I show up with one blog post that people are going to believe me. And in the beginning, no one came to the blog. But after like, (laughs) You know, after all, I read the Incidental Economist. Yeah, I, I've got it. I know, but it's like, but in the beginning, I joke all the time, like my, you know, our readership was in the tens, and I'm sure people yeah. have got the right. But you know, over time, people like, okay, these guys are rational, and they're explaining it, and they get it, and journalists started to pay attention, and it built an audience. Healthcare triage is the same way. You know, it takes time to build that level of trust and you don't ever squander it. So I try to be very careful, but ah. but it does. And it takes, the other thing, as I said before, like it takes time. I think people often want to show up at social media and think it's, let me, let me get viral as quickly as I can. Which is dangerous. You can do that. That it can be done, but that's never been my goal. It's more, I, I want to like, I want to build a level of trust. And then and that is one of the things I will say I like about social media is that I can follow journalists that I trust yep. as opposed to just reading outlets. Mm-hmm. And so even during the pandemic, you know, 
your Ed Youngs, your, yeah. you know, your other people at the Atlantic, Amanda Mull or Olga Kazan, or, you know, at Stat, like Helen Branswell or Matt Harper, or, you know, I granted I have colleagues in the New York Times that I, that I really follow, but I, I follow individuals and journalists yeah, that I've too. learned to trust as opposed to, I just read the New York Times. Yeah. How do you handle the trolls? Mostly two different ways. If they're horrible people, I ignore. But if there's even a chance of, and on Twitter, I will mostly just ignore or mute. But if somebody sends me an email and they took the time to write, if they at all seem reasonable, I will sometimes answer them and surprise them. And nine times out of 10, you'd be surprised. People respond by like, oh, now I feel terrible. It didn't occur to me that like you're a human being and you might actually read this and respond. Because you see it as an opportunity to build trust. Yeah, And so so sometimes you will break through. But I mean, clearly, if somebody's just being terrible, I just ignore it. Because what else? Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been unbelievably helpful for me also as somebody with with her own kind of social media presence. And I know that our listeners and the clinicians who are, who are listening to this podcast will find it valuable as well. At the end of my episodes, I, I always want to give our guests the platform and the chance to just speak directly to our audience. So when it comes to the world of medical misinformation and disinformation, is there one thing that you want healthcare leaders of all kinds to focus on or act on right now? I just like this thing. The biggest thing is that don't miss an opportunity to connect with patients that I know everybody is busy and I know that it's, it's really hard. And this has been an incredibly stressful year and a half and it's ongoing, but it is amazing to me that in poll after poll, doctors remain the most trusted source of information above anyone you see on TV. That's right. Above any politician, about any expert. You know, people can't see my air quotes, but expert. People trust their doctors. And we should make use of that. And make, take the opportunity, if you can, connect with patients. You'll probably do more to convince someone to get vaccinated or do the right thing than all the other messaging that, that, that people like me are going to do. Yeah. And if you're an administrator, make sure that your clinicians have the protective time yeah. to do that. Because I agree, this is an untapped resource that we, we need to use going forward. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Aaron, thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back with more Radio Advisory after this short break. Welcome, Solomon and Pam. Were you as excited as I was to talk to Aaron Carroll, or is this just me? I was incredibly excited, but I don't know if anyone can be as excited as you were, but I was very, (laughs) very excited. I have to echo that. Well, what was your favorite moment from the conversation? Was there a piece of advice or something that you latched onto that you went, that's it, that is the thing that we want to make sure people know when it comes to addressing medical misinformation? So one of the things that he said that really resonated with me is that it seems like right now we're at a time where people in the general public are exposed to just how much uncertainty there really is in medicine. And I think we're seeing this come to life right now with the ongoing debate over boosters. First, we thought the evidence said the boosters should be for everyone. Then some experts said high risk. And even within the medical community, there's a debate there. And I think that debate is really exemplifying just how much uncertainty we're dealing with on a day-to-day. 
And how hard it is to communicate it. Because, right, Pam, you were on the very last podcast we did talking about that debate, which was changing literally day by day. And I think it's already changed again. So not only is it difficult for people to understand the dynamics, it can make it really hard for people like us to just communicate that to the public. I think this is also what's complex when you think about misinformation and you insert clinicians into this equation, because absolutely what Pam said. But the other thing I took away is just how much trust the public has in clinicians. And yet they don't understand. We don't Mm -hmm. understand or appreciate just that level of uncertainty. And so when these conversations play out in public, it's just really hard as a layperson to wrap your mind around, oh, well, who should I trust here? And I think I really like the point, too, about pointing people back to the evidence Pam was referencing as his goal for engaging online. I think it's something we should all be keeping in mind. You're both bringing up the role of physicians, but you actually don't work with physicians. You work with the rest of the healthcare industry, right? The pharmaceutical companies, the drug makers, the device makers, the part of the industry that I don't think gets talked about enough, especially in this debate. So so do some translation for me. Beyond the physicians, the providers, the clinicians themselves, what's the role of other parts of the healthcare industry in addressing myths and misinformation? I think one piece is just accepting or at least acknowledging that, you know, historically, part of what our members, you know, life science, farm and device members have worked to do is to generate the evidence to prove in front of regulators, in front of the medical community, whether their treatment works, what are the trade-offs associated with it. And that has largely been done for the consumption of regulators, for the consumption of clinicians who do have the training to engage with that. But I think as we start to see Hmm. consumed, debated by clinicians and with patients and happening in this open forum, what then is the role or what are the implications for these evidence-generating individuals, organizations to try and proactively combat misinformation? Because this is a thing that is not going anywhere. And so how do we actually adapt to try and mitigate it? And that is so interesting to me because one of my aha moments from Aaron is you don't just directly, you know, vomit back the information. You say, let me explain it to you. But to your point, Solomon, these upstream actors have never had to do the let me explain it to you before. They write it in a way so that other scientists, other physicians, other regulators can understand. And I wonder if there's this moment of translation of let me explain it to you that becomes part of their their social responsibility, which just hasn't, hasn't happened before. I've seen it play out in a few pharmaceutical companies where they are starting to make more patient-focused videos or podcasts or taking, you know, steps to explain it. And I think it's a really good step, but hopefully that doesn't stop when the pandemic ends, right? That's something we should be doing always with all types of evidence. I have to admit there's a specific reason why I wanted the two of you to debrief with me. And that's not just because you work with another part of the healthcare industry, I know that you two are working on some thought pieces around the world of of misinformation, but you're focused more explicitly on what happens within medical communities. So for you, what have you learned about the role of good digital citizenship within online spaces? One of the biggest things that I learned is that there are so many places where physicians go online to have these debates, but it's important to keep in mind who your audience is and what you're discussing. 
So on the one hand, we know there are so many physicians on platforms like Twitter, Clubhouse, where these conversations are out for the whole public to see. But we also know clinicians go to online forums like Doximity or Sermo, which are these physician-only communities. And thinking about when and where to have these debates is one core element of good digital citizenship. And I also think we're trying to really figure out what it means to be a good digital citizen as a clinician. You know, Pam and I have have quipped, you know, as, as we were writing this about tweet no harm, like what does that principle actually mean? So it is being grounded in the evidence. It is like what Aaron said about providing the context so we can debate that and not sort of the blurbs and, and just talking points and keeping in mind that the conversation online is not the end goal. And so how do we drive to the things that are actually going hmm. to positively address misinformation, change behaviors, so we are all healthier as individuals, as communities, as a country? Well, given the conversation with Aaron and all of the things that you have learned about misinformation, online presence, the right way to think about digital citizenship, what's the one thing you want to make sure that our listeners take away or act on? Pam, let's start with you. So for me, obviously, misinformation has really been in the spotlight over the last year and a half, two years. But where the conversation has focused is what are the role of big tech companies, the Facebooks, the Twitters in controlling this? But I do think we need to narrow the focus a little bit to think about these online clinician communities and the role that they are having and spillover effect on the public. Solomon, what about you? My piece of advice would be more of a call to action. Right now, we're talking a lot about these concepts through the lens of COVID, but this was happening beforehand. There is no vaccine we can take against digital misinformation. And so really grappling wherever you sit in the healthcare (laughs) system of like, what's my role here, right? Like, how do I help mitigate this, support clinicians, ultimately support patients to get the information they need to make the right decisions for themselves, their families, etc.? Well, Pam, Solomon, thanks for coming on Radio Advisory. Thanks, Jerry. Always a pleasure. I know that in this conversation, we focused a little bit heavily on the clinician's role, because a clinician's role is, at the end of the day, to protect patients from harm, and that includes harm that they might be feeling or facing online through medical misinformation. But Solomon is right. Every single one of us plays a role here, whether you are upstream or downstream, whether you have decided to adopt an online presence yourself, whether you're an administrator, doesn't matter what corner of the healthcare ecosystem you come from. You have a role in combating this misinformation. And remember, as always, we're here to help. How do you handle the trolls? If they're just complete, no, I, probably I don't know if I can curse on your, <laughs> if they're terrible, do terrible it. people. <laughs>